Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today, no surprise there. Elizabeth Wrigley Field will discuss the enormous racial disparities in death at the hands of the police and also in normal life expectancy. And then Tom Philpot will analyze the profound ecological crises facing two crucial food-growing regions of the U.S., California's Central Valley and the Midwestern Corn Belt. Even if you're aware of the depth and cruelty of racism in the U.S., every now and then you come across some evidence of it that stops you in your tracks. And by you, I mean a well-informed but comfortable white person. The sociologist and demographer Elizabeth Wrigley Field has done just that with two recent papers on black-white differences in mortality. In one, she takes the measure of years of life lost to police violence. In the other, she asks how many extra white people would have to die of COVID-19 to match the normal death rate of black Americans. The numbers are staggering. In the interview, I mentioned a New York Times article from earlier this week that draws in her work. It's a piece by Gus Wazirik called Racism's Hidden Toll, posted on August 11th. Say what you will about the Times, and one can say many critical things about it, but their data visualization graphics are first rate, and this piece is a fine example of that. Elizabeth Wrigley Field, and yes, that's really her name, her mother is Wrigley and her father, Field, is an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Minnesota and an affiliate of the Minnesota Population Center. Elizabeth Wrigley Field. We've been paying a lot of attention to the fact that uh, American police kill a lot of people, uh, disproportionately black people, Uh, but um, what is the impact on uh, years of life? How important is it? How many lives are cut short? Uh, And what kind of dimension here? So my research is building on research that was done by Frank Edwards, Hedwig Lee, and Michael Esposito. And they looked at how many people die at the hands of police in the United States. And they found something that I find staggering, which is that the lifetime risk of dying uh, to police force is one in 1,000 for black men in the United States. So meaning over the course of their lifetime, one in 1,000 uh, black men will die in a in that kind of police encounter. Now we're not talking just about shootings. We're talking about other kinds of encounters as well. That's right. So um, they found that the one in 1,000 is for uh, things involving police force. So that could be a shooting, but it could also be uh, a chokehold, something else, though, that involves an application of force. So it's not just a police officer's presence And it's also not a car accident death, which is actually an important category of deaths um, that police officers cause. And of course, uh, death by being jailed. um, Also, that's not included. That's right. Yeah. So these are deaths outside of custody. um, And that's also important. So it's not in jail. It's not in a detention center. um, It's like out on the street or in a home, something like that. One in a thousand is really quite a high number. I thought so, too. I mean, to me, this was absolutely shocking. And so that was the context in which I started thinking about how much loss of life is that. And that's a question that had been examined uh, previously by a research team led by Anthony Bowie. And I built on their work to look for different race and gender specific groups in the United States. What's the lifetime loss of life collectively? to um, police encounters. And what has that one uh, thousand figure compared to other demographics? Oh, so the it's much higher for black men. And the biggest divide is between men and women. Uh, so women are f- far less likely than men to die to police force. Although interestingly, the disparity is less when you look at uh, officer-involved deaths more broadly. So, you know, women are not so much less likely to die of, uh, for example, a a car accident involving police officers. Um, So those kinds of deaths may be much more about uh, where officers, what neighborhoods they're patrolling, how they patrol them. Um, But the application of force that ends in death uh, is overwhelmingly to men uh, and very overwhelmingly to black men. 
Now, of course, you hear this argument sometimes. Yeah, um, cops shoot a lot of black people, but they shoot white people too. How do these statistics compare? So in my figures about the loss of life, uh, I think the, the uh, loss of life for black men is about two and a half times the loss for white men. So I think both, I think to me, the right way to think about this is that both things are true. Cops do shoot white people. They particularly shoot uh, people of any race who have mental illnesses. Um, the level of uh, police violence and uh, certainly of incarceration that whites experience in the United States is far beyond uh, in Europe, for example. It is really um, unprecedented for as rich a country we are in the world, the way that we tolerate police violence and incarceration in terms of just the scale of it. And it's much more, it's very disproportionate for blacks. So I think if you only see one of those at a time, you're sort of missing some of the story about policing in the United States. I'm guessing that uh, men who are killed by the cops, black men who are killed by the cops in particular, tend to be fairly youngish, right? I mean, what, what age did these, uh, these deaths happen? Yeah, that's right. So it's the typical ages would be around the late 20s um, or sometimes early 30s. And the, um, the typical life lost would be uh, around, I think it's around 35 years for black men. The, the people who lose um, the fewest uh, years of life are white men at 39 years. So actually black men must be more than that. I remember it's similar for all the men. It's, it's, it's like roughly 40-ish years. And actually who per capita... The, the group that loses the most lifetime with each police killing is Native women, who on average lose 52 years of life each time that they are killed uh, by police. Um, and that reflects that they're killed at much younger ages. It's interesting that women are more affected than men. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think that these deaths are happening probably in different contexts. It also reflects that women live longer than men do. Um, and so, and this in some ways is a weakness of the measure of life years lost in that it, it sort of uh, takes for granted all of these other inequalities that we have, right? And so the way that I estimate these models is I, I basically have the counterfactual that says, what if we just took police killings out of the world, but left everything else the same? How much extra lifetime would there be? And of course, leaving everything else the same is, is also leaving a huge amount of inequality the same, right? And so like a black man and a white man killed at the same age, the white man is losing more years of life because we expect them to live longer because of all the other aspects of racism in the US, right? And so women lose more lifetime when they're killed by police. Partly that's because uh, Native women in particular are killed at younger ages, but it's also just that women live longer than men do. Okay, this is a good segue to your other paper. Uh, uh, the the gap between white and black life expectancy is is extraordinary. Um, could you describe it? How how big is it? And what's the trajectory been? Is it narrowed over time? Stayed the same over time? What's it look like? So it's it's sort of narrowed and stalled and narrowed and stalled. And so the trends are one thing, but I think to me what is most striking looking at this over time is just the sheer continuity. Um, and how the, the staggering scale of the inequality um, between blacks and whites. So the way that I came to this question is I was doing some research on infectious mortality in the early 20th century with some collaborators, James Feigenbaum and Chris Muller. And we were looking at regional differences. Um, and we kept finding that the South was really different from everywhere else. It had much higher infectious mortality rates. And eventually we realized that it wasn't actually a regional difference at all. It was mostly uh, that everywhere in the country, blacks had much higher infectious mortality than everybody else. Now, if you're looking at the early 20th century, that was before the Great Migration too, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so sort of during that period, the regional differences kind of shift around, partly because migrating kind of selects the healthiest people and then puts them into, I mean, the conditions that people were living in in northern cities were like unbelievably horrible and unhealthy, and they paid a price for that in, in mortality. But so we're looking at this early 20th century context, and we found this result that was really 
stunning to us, which was that the level of infectious mortality that urban whites experienced in 1918 during the 1918 flu pandemic was less than what urban blacks were experiencing every single year. And we were not expecting that. We at first thought we must have made a mistake. We looked at it many different ways until we were convinced that it's real. And I've now seen that it's true, not just with infectious mortality in urban populations, but many different kinds of mortality, um, mortality overall and in the country overall. So the level of mortality that whites experienced in 1918 is less than what blacks were experiencing every year without any pandemic. Early 20th century, what kind of infectious diseases are you talking about aside from the flu? The flu and pneumonia were uh, one really big one. Tuberculosis was the other. So the two of those are sort of like the two really big killers. And then there's a lot of other stuff that matters. Measles, whooping cough, all kinds of diarrheal diseases that mostly killed children um, in the context before clean water were really important. And then all kinds of other things that you, you just sort of don't think about um, today because we have antibiotics. So like syphilis comes in as an important cause of death. I'm speaking with a sociologist and demographer, Elizabeth Wrigley Field. In that New York Times piece that draws on, on your work, uh, there's some stuff about how in northern cities, um, black people were kept penned up because they were seen as disease reservoirs. You know, So there was no interest in addressing the disease. It was just isolate them and keep them locked up. Yeah, I mean, this to me is a particularly cruel irony, which is that northern cities created the conditions and forced people to live in conditions in which they were almost guaranteed to have a very high level of infectious disease. Uh, so just intense crowding, horrific housing stock, uh, living with vermin, um, sometimes without clean water, and then turn around and blame people who've been forced to live in these conditions for their own illnesses and use that as a reason for further or an excuse for further exclusion. Um, something like this is, uh, I think, uh, what compelled me to do that police killing analysis in the first place is um, I was talking to a reporter completely unrelated to police violence, but uh, she knew that I had been at a George Floyd, just, uh, Justice for George Floyd protest because I'd had to reschedule our conversation. And she's asked me, how do you respond to the idea that these protests are just spreading COVID? And it really stayed with me, that question, how do you respond? And I realized that it was just the cruelty of, you know, at the time, we all kind of assumed that these protests would be spreading COVID, right? But that having people live in a context where at, at any moment you're at threat from the police. And then when, you, when people came out, I think, very courageously to stand up against that, than saying, you know, if you get sick from that, it's your fault. We're going to turn around and blame you. Um, but that, to me, has a very long history in the way that we think about infectious disease in the United States. And from what we know, um, you know, the actual transmission was little or none, right? Yeah, this was a surprise to me, but it, it actually looks that way. Uh, a combination, I think, of being outdoors and then masking norms spreading really quickly through the protests. My experience over the first week was that the early protests were much less masked, and then people sort of saw, oh, everyone else is doing this. I better do this too. And it became a kind of like way that people cared for one another in the protests. Except the cops, of course, they don't mask. Yeah, exactly. Spraying tear gas and detaining people, right, is like if you were trying to figure out how to spread a respiratory pandemic, this is probably what you would do. Well, I've read accounts that they, they seem to take pleasure in stripping people of their mask, and they threw them in Rikers, too. That's horrific. Yeah. Um, so uh, now your paper on, on, on COVID deaths and uh, versus like normal black um, mortality, uh, that's an interesting way to uh, approach the question. Yeah. What's your argument? What, what's, what did you find? So I came at this from that backdrop of having found this result with my collaborators that 1918 level mortality for whites was less than what blacks were experiencing every year. And so that result had made a big impact on me, but I thought of it as something about the early 20th century. And then sometime in May, I asked myself the question, is it possible that that will be true this time? And so I set out to figure out how many excess white deaths would have to happen in 2020 in order for white mortality this year to reach the levels that black mortality has been every year. 
And in fact, I decided to be even more kind of conservative about it and say to reach the best level that black mortality has ever been. When was that? 2014. So we've uh, we've uh, lost ground in the last uh, five, six years. Yeah, that's right. And white mortality, most of those years has gone up. Also, the whole country um, has been doing a little worse in the last um, several years. And we know from Social Security data, too, that uh, um, mortality, morbidity and mortality by income has been widening. Right. We just have more inequality in the, in the realm of health. Yeah, that's right. Um, there's a and, and by education as well. Um, there's a huge um, disparity, right? So um, the the people who are doing the best in the United States can, can still expect to live longer and longer and longer, um, but that is no longer true for everybody else. Some people will uh, hear that kind of uh, statistic and think, well, the race difference in mortality is just an income difference, as if, of course, race had nothing to do with income. But yeah, what do you say to that kind of argument that you might hear uh, I think I would say two things. And one is that it's not right. So, you know, so my results show that for whites in 2020 uh, to reach the best that black mortality has ever been, at least 400,000 extra whites would have to die this year due to COVID and things related to COVID. Um, That's staggering. Uh, And that's different from the income disparity. So I haven't done that particular analysis with income. Um, But that is a wider disparity in general in mortality. But the other thing I would say is what you said, which is that it's a little bit silly to treat these things as separate, you know, as though the fact that uh, many blacks are impoverished and immiserated doesn't have anything to do with racism. Of course, it has everything to do with racism. Uh, So you find that 400,000 extra white people would have to die to match uh, black mortality at its best, right? What about, you know, at its its where it is now. So where it is now is a little bit lower than what it was in 2014. So I don't know the numbers, but it would be a little bit higher than 400,000. But I did the comparison to 2014 because I really wanted to see, you know, this is the best that black mortality has ever been. Are are whites likely to reach that level through COVID? And the answer is probably not. Well, of course, there's uh, differentials in uh, death rates um, on, from COVID that uh, is probably if anything, expanding the differential, not narrowing it. Yeah, that's right. So the if you adjust for age and all of that, the um, disparity of, of black COVID rates, death rates are about two and a half times whites. Um, so this certainly will be a, a wider, an even wider disparity this year than in the past. Now, I believe your political point from uh, this research is that, you know, we rightly see COVID as an emergency, a major social emergency, although uh, our government is hardly acting like it is. But we don't really see this kind of routine um, black morbidity and mortality as a serious problem. It's, uh, you know, it's just uh, normal. We shrug our shoulders at it. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, so obviously there's huge political controversy around methods of COVID control, but they're also incredibly popular. So the majority of the United States thinks that the shutdown should have gone down longer. Even the majority of workers who lost their jobs um, or lost wages due to shutdowns, think that the shutdowns are a good idea. So there's actually a pretty high level of social consensus that we should be radically reorganizing all kinds of things about how we live, how our economic institutions function, all kinds of stuff in order to stop the spread of COVID. And that's absolutely right. We should we should do all of that and we should have that social consensus. But it's very striking to then see most white Americans oppose reparations Uh, The idea that most oppose defunding the police, although the um, opinions about that are changing rapidly in a way that's really exciting. But so the idea that we would embrace a similar level of radical reorganization of our society to stop deaths that happen to racism is much more controversial, even though it's actually the same or a larger scale of deaths than it's happening every single year. I've heard one reaction to uh, playing up these um, disparities about uh, COVID and you know, mortality in general is that white people hear that sort of thing and say, oh, I don't have to worry. It's their problem. Uh, does it kind of reinforce, is there a risk of reinforcing that, uh, that instinct to uh, either shrug it off or even redline, isolate, keep away from these dangerous, infectious people? I think there can be that risk in it. It says that we have to be 
thoughtful about uh, the way that our movements frame issues and, and the solidarity we try to build. But, you know, I think going back to that police killing question that you asked about, like, white people also die at the hands of the police much more in the United States than in our peer countries, right? Um, are much more likely to be incarcerated. We have a much worse social welfare system, and that has everything to do with the way that welfare has been derided through extremely racist policies designed to make them seem like they're just for blacks and then to demonize them on that basis, right? And so part of the message that we have to convey is that most of our lives would be better if we lived in a less racist society, even if we're white. And then the other part of the message is, you know, this level of death that doesn't have to happen is just absolutely intolerable. Um, and even if our lives wouldn't be better off, we would have to fight this because it's a moral imperative. But I think I think we need both of those. But the, the kinds of measures uh, necessary to address these uh, gaps in health and mortality would really require a wholesale renovation of the society, right? I mean, it's like living patterns, work patterns, uh, inheritance. I'm just like a very long list of things that would have to be um, addressed. That's right. So the, the wealth that's inherited from family to family that then creates differences in housing, that then creates differences in educational access, all of these things cascade. And I think it's right that there's no getting out of this loop without uprooting big parts of it. But the, the death numbers are staggering and really, um, you know, staggering proof of the reality of this. Yeah. I mean, I have to say these numbers were really, um, they were much larger than I was expecting. It was very sobering for me um, to do these calculations and to realize COVID is terrifying, right? Like I had it myself. I was very worried for my family. Um, it's a very scary experience. Uh, and to realize that White's experience of that disease is still probably going to be less than the year in, year out loss, extra loss of life for blacks. You, to me, that's just a reorienting fact that it should just change the way we think about what kinds of disruption are we willing to tolerate in order to have a more fair society. That was Elizabeth Wrigley Field, a sociologist and demographer who teaches at the University of Minnesota. This work reminds me of a comparative study of China and India that's a chapter in Hunger and Public Action, a 1991 book by Jean Drez and Amartya Sen. Among other things, they compare the deaths from China's 1958-61 to 61 famine, which is usually blamed on Mao's Great Leap Forward, launched in 1957. As many as 30 million people are thought to have died in that famine, perhaps the largest in history. Drez and Sen compare the famine's death toll with routine excess death in India because of rampant poverty. They find the death rate in India to be much higher, or as they put it, India seems to manage to fill its cupboard with more skeletons every eight years than China put there in its years of shame. But since that scale of death in India is routine and can't be blamed in a demonized Mao, it goes largely unnoticed, just as we notice COVID-19, but not the routine premature death experienced by black Americans. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Some of Domenico Scarlatti's Sonata Number no. 296 in the Kirkpatrick catalog, performed by Scott Ross. You can find Ross's complete run of the Scarlatti Sonatas on YouTube. They're fabulous. Next, a food crisis, a close relative of the ecological crisis. It's hardly breaking news that U.S. style industrial farming can pump out plenty of cheap, often low quality food at enormous environmental and social cost. 
So great is that cost that the whole system could do itself in fairly quickly. Tom Philpott, the food and agricultural correspondent for Mother Jones, is just out with a book, Perilous Bounty, The Looming Collapse of American Farming and How We Could Prevent It, published by Bloomsbury. Philpott looks at two crucial U.S. growing regions, California's Central Valley, where something like a quarter of our food comes from, and the Corn Belt, where much of our meat comes from. The Central Valley is running out of water, though it's also at great risk of being flooded with 10 or 15 feet of water any year now. And the Corn Belt, one of the most naturally fertile regions on Earth, is losing massive amounts of its rich soil to erosion, as well as punishing the Earth with vast amounts of chemical pollution. How severe is the damage, how great is the risk, and how might we avoid doom? Tom Philpott answers those questions in this highly readable and not hopeless book. Tom Philpott. You focus on two uh, geographical areas which are really crucial to U.S. food production, and actually world food production, uh, the Central Valley of California and uh, the Corn Belt, particularly Iowa, uh, both of which are suffering very serious ecological challenges. So let's take them in turn. What about the Central Valley in California? Where is it exactly, and how much does it provide, and what, what is the scope of the, uh, the challenge? The Central Valley is the sort of huge valley that kind of is the spine of California. It goes from pretty southern California up to nearly the Oregon border, and it's bound on one side by the coastal mountain range and by the, uh, on the other side by the Sierra Nevada. It's this really amazing place to grow food in a lot of ways. It's got a Mediterranean climate, long, hot summers, uh, very mild winters that are given to year-round food production. And even though it, you know, its rainfall would tell you that it's more or less of a desert, it's pretty unique in that it's got this huge mountain range, the Sierra Nevada, that uh, captures, generally speaking, a huge amount of snow in the winter that is melted and released in the, in the spring and goes through this incredible state-funded, both federal and California-funded network of irrigation infrastructure to send all of this water to farms. You know, that great bulk of that water from the Sierra Nevada goes to farms. Not all of it, something like 80% of it. For that reason, it's a fantastic place to grow food. The problem is that capitalist agriculture in the area has gotten so big and so productive that it's outstripped its water resources. You know, it basically uses way more water, significantly more water than the Sierra Nevada uh, snowmelt can, can provide. And so farmers have responded by just digging wells and sucking down the aquifer, which is basically a fossil resource. And, um, and so what you're looking at is so much extraction of water from underground that you're getting subsidence, which is you know, basically when the ground settles and sinks. And that's pretty bad news because it snarls up bridges and roads and tunnels and other transportation infrastructure. But it also messes up that irrigation infrastructure. So you get canals that have weird dips in them that cause water to leak and causes water to hold up. And there's significant losses of water that way. And so that, that creates more demand for pumping, which creates more you know, water pumping from underground, which creates more subsidence. And so you're in this um, really bad sort of cycle. And you know, the other thing is that as you get lower and lower in the aquifer where you're, you're getting water from, there's higher and higher concentrations of salt, uh, which makes it impossible to grow food. And we're already seeing salinification happening in the southern central valley. And you also get naturally occurring chemicals like arsenic that aren't from agribusiness, but they, um, they concentrate on the water and make it basically poisonous. And so you've got areas, mostly low-income farm worker areas, that have you know either no access to water at all at times or poisonous water, and so you get people households making fifteen twenty thousand dollars a year, spending hundreds if not thousands of dollars a year on bottled water. So it's just you know it's just a really really bad situation, and it's kind of a race to the bottom of the aquifer. And now it also is a region that suffers extremes of precipitation, right? They've had droughts in recent years. But then if you go back in the 19th century, there's this catastrophic flood. What was that, the 1840s or 50s? It was 1861-62. Yeah, and you know, an awful lot of people in California had never heard of it. Yeah. Quite uh, biblical in its proportions. Indeed. And, and, um, and you know, it really kind of illustrates California's... California's always had a very chaotic weather regime. It's, you know, basically... 
it's weather starts deep in the South Pacific and water evaporates there and comes, um, comes up and um, literally comes over in what, what are known as atmospheric rivers. And the way the weather regime works is that there's a high pressure zone that settles in the summer that pushes the water north into the sort of Oregon, Pacific Northwest West area, and a little bit south into um, southern Mexico. And so in the summertime, California gets very, very little uh, precipitation. And in the winter, that pressure zone eases off. And so that's when these um, atmospheric rivers come. And that's basically the engine for this snowmelt that basically comes across and hits the Sierra Nevada and dumps his snow. And that, that's basically the, the great water resource of the state. But what we're seeing with, well, first of all, when scientists look back at the historical record, they find these massive floods recur every 100 to 200 years. And the last one that you're talking about, I have a whole chapter on it, is the one that happened in 1861-62 that put the entire Central Valley, the whole thing from you know Southern California up to Oregon, under 10 feet of water. And you know it was considered to be a freak event. It completely rearranged agriculture in California, uh, or at least in the Central Valley. It had been based on a smattering of cattle farms, mostly owned by Mexican rancheros who had gotten U.S. citizenship after uh, statehood. And they were completely pushed out. The cattle industry was completely wiped out. And basically, white settlers took it over and switched over to wheat because it's a lot cheaper to establish wheat than it is to reestablish a cattle herd. The historical record shows that these floods happen every 100 to 200 years. The last one was about 150 years ago, so we're pretty much due for one. And then the really scary thing I was finding out from my research is that climate change both makes the likelihood of severe droughts increase. It means that we're looking at periods that make the 2011-2016 um, drought look like child's play. Um, but we're also looking at massive storms, even bigger than the one that happened in 1861-62. They're much more likely because you get these violent atmospheric rivers uh, coming all at once. And um, people I talk to, a lot of scientists are, are talking about how it's extremely likely within the next 20 years that we'll see something like that. And there's, there's almost no preparing for it. And, you know, you think about the Central Valley was sparsely populated. It had pretty low value agriculture. Now it's got all these fast growing cities like Fresno, Bakersfield, um, Stockton, places like that that are becoming population magnets. But now uh, the, the Central Valley also provides an enormous amount of our food. What, uh, what do they produce there and how, how important is it? Altogether, the Central Valley itself provides about a quarter of the food that we eat in the United States. Lots and lots of produce, um, lots of stone fruits. There's some residual cotton. There was a lot of cotton there in the earlier part of the 20th century, decreasing over time, but, but still existing. And one thing that we're seeing is as water gets more scarce, the sort of logic is not, hey, let's do something that uses less water, or let's f figure out a more water-smart kind of agriculture. The logic is, let's get the most money per drop of water. And so what that has meant is this uh, rapid transition to growing uh, nuts, almonds, pistachios. So these are very high-value crops. They're very much in demand in places like China. In the United States has had a boom in demand for almonds. They're very well-marketed. But what it means is that you know, it takes literally millions of dollars to put in a large almond grove. And so it's this incredible investment. And that means that when you go through a period of drought, you're going to keep watering it. it you know, as economists say, it hardens demand for water. Uh, you can't fallow it for a year because you're going to lose the entire investment. And so we're, we're seeing this rapid transition to these permanent, high-value permanent crops like almonds that put the area at yet more risk for both flooding and drought. The other area you write about is the uh, Corn Belt in the Midwest, uh, especially Iowa. What are the challenges there? Well, so Iowa and the Corn Belt, that's where, if California is basically where your fruits and vegetables come from, Iowa and the Corn Belt is where your meat comes from. The great bulk of meat that you'll see in a supermarket was grown by livestock that were fattened on corn and soybeans. Over the years, the region had a fairly diverse agricultural 
legacy post-settlement. Um, but over the last you know half century or so, um, it's basically winnowed down to corn and soybeans, uh, plus lots and lots of hogs that are, you know, essentially you feed the hogs corn and soybeans, essentially transform corn and soybeans into meat, a higher value product. And so the story there is that by planting just two crops over tens of millions of acres in the area, it causes all different kinds of problems. But the sort of uh, most blatant one is that they're both planted at the same time in the spring and harvested more or less at the same time in the fall. And in between the fall harvest and the spring planting, you've basically got bare ground. It's just sort of just uh, sitting there extremely vulnerable to the elements. And then you get these really vicious spring storms, sort of like the one that hit this week in Iowa. But um, when they hit, when the, the crop is up, like, like now, you're going to lose part of the crop. But you're probably going to keep the soil in place. When they hit in the late winter and spring, what you're seeing is soil erosion on a level that is just staggering. And when, you know, when you add it all up and average it out, I've, I've got this great soil scientist uh, source at Iowa State University named Richard Cruz. And what, what he figures is that the region is losing topsoil at a rate about 16 times the rate of natural reproduction meaning that we're, you know, there's basically a race to the bottom of the U.S., of the Midwest's uh, incredible store of topsoil. This style of farming is uh, destroying one of the most fertile pieces of land on Earth, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's as, at least as rare as the Mediterranean climate of the uh, Central Valley. It's, you know, basically there are four or five places on Earth where you had these prairie-derived topsoils that are interactions between large ruminants like bison, prairie grasses, um, lots and lots of rain, U.S. Midwest, the pampas of Argentina, the, the, the black soil lands of Ukraine, and there really aren't very many more of them, and the U.S. has got the biggest one. And, you know, they're basically all under severe pressure from corn and soybeans, and it's the same agribusiness companies that supply the seeds, the pesticides that buy the product and turn it into meat. It, it, it's pretty staggering. I'm speaking with Tom Philpot, author of Perilous Bounty from Bloomsbury. That's one of the interesting things about the, the economics of it. The, the, the farmers, who are not small operators necessarily, it's not Little House in the Prairie stuff, but uh, they're um, really under intense competitive pressure uh, from constant pressure in agricultural prices. But also, uh, they have to deal with very concentrated suppliers. And when they produce their, their grains or meat, then they have to sell them to very concentrated processors. So they're, they're stuck in this very competitive market of their own, but between two powerful sets of oligopolies. It's a very strange business. It is. And, um, and you know, basically, the, the profits generated from it essentially accrue to these oligopolies, the, the buyers and the input suppliers. And... You know what? You know, I think there's a, a this question that looms over it, like, why do the farmers do this? Why don't they do something different? And you know, the answer to that comes down to farm policy, because you know, it's a creation of the New Deal, and the idea was to manage supply and sort of create a a balance between the amount of uh, food produced by farmers and the sort of demand among consumers, and sort of give both a fair shake, give farmers a fair price, but make sure there's a abundant food supply. It took a neoliberal turn well before the, the big neoliberal turn in the United States. Eisenhower's um, USDA chief, Ezra Taft Benson, hated that program and basically wanted to open it up to, the, to market forces. And, and so that really took root under Earl Butts, under Nixon, and took another step forward under Clinton, you know, at the real sort of height of the neoliberal era. The basic idea was to sell farmers on this lie that, hey, Produce as much as you can. Don't worry about overproduction because we'll just sell it abroad. We'll open up markets and sell it abroad. And that has never succeeded. One thing that, that messes it up is that Brazil figured out how to do industrial agriculture in its um, savanna region. Um, Argentina is transforming its pampas into a great integrated system of corn, beef, and, and hay and turning it into a corn and soybean megalith. Uh, Ukraine is uh, rapidly transferring over to corn and soybean ag. And so the foreign markets have been opened, but now there's all of this foreign competition. And so they're still in a state of oversupply. 
And the U.S. government makes up the difference with these um, commodity payments and insurance subsidies that were always supposed to be temporary. You know, we're going to have this export boom that's going to sort everything out. And that export boom is not coming. Um, and so it's really screwing farmers over and sort of putting them on this treadmill. And these giant corporations make out like bandits. Well, those giant corporations, too, um, they produce immense amounts of really toxic materials, which are poisoning not only the locals, but bodies of water as far away as the Gulf of Mexico, right? Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's astonishing that, that it's happening. It's basically sort of this taxpayer-funded calamity that millions of people in the Midwest either have to pay extra in their water bill to filter out, let's say, the nitrates. Um, some of the stuff you can't filter out. Um, some of the pesticides and stuff um, sort of defy filtration. So there's, there's that. And then the, the nitrates and phosphorus from fertilizers create algae blooms on lakes um, that can be quite poisonous and create the, you know, this massive algae bloom down in the Gulf of Mexico so this year, it was a smaller than normal. In 2020, there's a smaller than normal algae bloom in the Gulf of Mexico that creates a dead zone. And people were celebrating it. Uh, and the reason was just some late storms diluted the flow of uh, agrochemicals. But this year, it's only the size of Rhode Island. And that's considered to be a victory. Um, it gets as big as, you know, New Jersey and Connecticut. You have to revert to U.S. states to find a, um, an analog for how big it is. Um, but yeah, it's this predictable thing that started around 1970 with that's, you know, that's when the real kind of industrialization of agriculture and the, the real focus on corn and soybeans began. Now it's just this annual fact of life that sucks if you're a fisherman in the Gulf of Mexico. Okay, so now um, facing these disasters, what can we do about it? For example, the, the Central Valley of California, how could that be reconfigured in a more sustainable way? The overarching thing is that we have to take pressure off of California as this place that, that we all get our food from, no matter pretty much no matter where you are in the country. A good practice going into climate change would be to invest in uh, re, you know, local and especially regional food systems. Now, I, I don't mean the sort of three-acre farm that I worked on in North Carolina, which those are valuable and important, but they're not going to get us there. We need to be um, thinking about regional food security, regional food production, and looking at mid-sized farms, proper mid-sized farms that are big enough to sort of supply institutions. Um, and, and I don't mean eliminating California agriculture or taking it out of the U.S. mix. I just mean de-emphasizing it. In the Central Valley, I mean, I just think empowering farm workers. I think figuring out how to get farm workers fair wages, fair housing, and, you know, give them the right to clean water that is in the Clean Water Act, to sort of enforce the Clean Water Act. In a perfect world, there would be some expropriation of land because giant institutions, including Harvard and other sort of hedge funds, are going in there. They have been for about a decade buying land and running it completely with the interests of the next 20 years bottom line in mind. Um, and I think figuring out a way to, you know, maybe if there are farm workers in the, in the area who know how to farm, who are fleeing the agrarian crisis of places like Mexico and, and um, Guatemala, maybe situating them, figuring out a way to do some land reform and get them some farms that are supplying the local area, at least the local region, and not basing the agriculture system completely on high-value snacks like almonds to China. This sort of gets at, gets at the whole um, nonsense of the feed-the-world feed rhetoric that you hear both in California and in the Midwest. Low-income consumers nowhere are, buy, are, are eating meat fattened on U.S. corn and soybeans. It's a completely middle-class and up kind of thing, and almonds even more so. Iowa, I mean, and you actually go see a visit a farm in Ohio, too, so I guess the entire Corn Belt. But you look at some people who are doing different things, rotating crops, mixing livestock and grain, cover crops. Yeah, what, what's that all about? There is a, a set of farmers lo loosely connected who are figuring that this system isn't working for them and it's destroying their land. And they're saying, why should we participate in a system where what we're making in the marketplace is less than the cost of production and we're losing soil doing it? So shouldn't we try something else? And so I talked to a couple of farmers and they've been out there forever. I mean, they, 
And, you know, these are, I would say, innovative farmers. They're not necessarily doing old-fashioned things. They're, they're figuring out how to use current technology, not necessarily biotechnology, but, you know, things like uh, modern combines, things like that, to incorporate biodiversity and just sort of, huh, you know, maybe we shouldn't simplify our farm that, you know, this is a, um, an ecosystem that supported uncountable species of grasses and plants and animals. And we've narrowed it down to two um, species, corn and soybeans, and we're having all kinds of trouble. Maybe we should reintroduce some, some biodiversity. And these examples are great, but they're not taking off. They're not convincing their neighbors en masse to do the same because, they're, you know, farmers are, tend to be risk averse. And they keep doing the same thing. And they're also operating in very thin margins. They're operating in micro thin margins and are relying on these government payments that you can risk. If you're not doing corn and soybeans, your subsidy rate is going to be a lot lower. It's going to be a lot harder to get credit and things like that. So um, it's a policy issue, right? There's no way that people are going to change just on their own. They really need to, to be prodded by the hand of the state. Yeah, it's a policy issue. And if you look at the original Green New Deal proposal that was pretty light on food, but just the way that it has gotten filled out. Um, I think that the Bernie Sanders Green New Deal agenda on his website is probably the best example. In that document, which you can Google and find, there are incredible policies that would basically address everything that I talk about in my book. It doesn't address California specifically, but it talks about reinvesting in local food system, local and regional food systems. And there's a lot in there about diversifying agriculture in the Midwest. There is a myth that you hear a lot on the right and you sometimes hear on the left that the state shouldn't be involved with agriculture. And I think that's wrong. It's an incredibly difficult business that you're relying on the weather and just all these contingencies. And if farmers fail, then societies fail. So I think there's a, a social stake in having a robust food system and the, the market doesn't cut it. The market doesn't, doesn't pay for that. So I think the state should be involved. And if you look in Bernie's plans, you know, there's just things like paying farmers to store carbon in soil, which is tricky, but it's becoming possible. The technology is becoming possible. Paying them for practices that we know make soil more resilient and help farmers build soil rather than just sort of sacrificing it every spring to, um, to storms, things like that. Because agribusiness is so powerful and there's so much money behind it, you know, they invest a share of that profit into stuff like lobbying and funding campaigns. And if you look at, you know, someone like me has been covering this issue for about 20 years you know, the once every five year farm bill is just this depressing process because all the important questions are basically answered by the time it gets to the committees. And there's never any real reform that sort of tweaks the system. And that was what was so hopeful to me about the Green New Deal and about Bernie's plan was that it was basically like, forget the farm bill. This is a climate problem. Let's put this in climate policy and get, get social movements behind it. And I think that's what it's going to take in the end. A lot of people hear these, what you're talking about, more localized markets, smaller farms, more diversification. They're going to say, well, that's just not as productive. The food is going to be more expensive and less plentiful. Um, is that true? It's a little bit of a caricature that the critique of this current system means that you have to transition to tiny farms. What would really be powerful and resilient going forward would be to have a multiplicity of scales operating. And I think, you know, for a, a grain farm in the Midwest, a appropriate scale could be, let's say, 500 acres, where you're doing 500 acres to 1,000 acres, by no means tiny, a lot smaller than some of these giant operations now, which could be five or 10,000 acres. But a proper cooperatively owned farm could manage that in a way that is really productive, um, even actually more productive than just these corn and soybean farms, but with a lot of ecological benefits. I mean, there is a lot of research that a more diversified system that's not just doing corn and soybeans can actually be more productive, produce more food. Uh, it's just more kinds of food than those, uh, those two. 
but it's a bit more labor intensive. It is. It is a bit more labor intensive. And it's also what we call more management intensive. You have to put more thought into it. You can't just sort out a problem by pushing a button and making all the weeds dis- disappear because you've sprayed poisons on them. It definitely requires more labor and especially more intuition and experience. But, you know, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing if you can figure out a way to pay people more. And I think that that gets us down to the whole problem of you'll read um, like a Vox article, like how do we quote unquote fix food or fix the food system, but you can't abstract it from the broader economy. So if you have a, a broader economy that is based on lots of ruthlessly exploited lo- low-wage jobs, then if that's the basis of your economy, then you're not going to be able to fix that in agriculture. Um, so I think if we can move toward a system that we've seen in this coronavirus crisis, that, you know, quote-unquote essential workers are, you know, essentially being led to slaughter by just the, the horrible labor protections that we have in this country and just the terrible wages, lack of health care, that's the problem to fix. And if we do that, then I don't think that the, the agriculture being more labor intensive is a problem. We actually need more skilled jobs. And this, if we thought of it as a skilled job instead of, instead of just sort of the lowest form of labor, I think that would take us a long way. Which takes us back to the Green New Deal, which is both a comprehensive ecological policy, but also a social justice one. That's exactly right. That is why it's such a brilliant policy because it acknowledges that, that need for better paid labor and for creating jobs. And this could be part of the jobs creation program of, of a Green New Deal. That was Tom Philpot, food and agriculture correspondent for Mother Jones and author of the freshly published Perilous Bounty, The Looming Collapse of American Farming and How We Can Prevent It from Bloomsbury. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of Train Round the Bend from the Velvet Underground. I have nothing but respect for farmers, but that life is just not for me. And we city boys are feeling very besieged in these days of COVID-19. Till next week, bye.